Welcome, welcome, welcome. What is happening, everybody? This is the Sneaky Emu, a place where we went to discover the divine and the beauty of the world and everything that is ever before us that sometimes we overlook or fail to see. Uh, my name is Seth. I am, I am, I'm just so, I'm glad you're here. Man, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Both of you, <laughs> whoever's out there listening. I am so excited. Um, so this is episode number 25, 25, I believe. And, uh, we want to call today, <laughs> uh, bandwagon fans, the comfort of hell and the apocalypse. Yeah. How do you like that one? Does that grab, does that grab your attention? Does that get you, get you a bit curious? Bandwagon fans, the comfort of hell and the apocalypse. <laughs> I mean, come on, if you're going to make something up like a podcast and you're going to talk to a microphone by yourself, you might as well enjoy the thing that you're doing. Because if you don't enjoy it, who else will? You know what I'm saying? Uh, so before we get started, a couple big shout outs uh, to my mom. Thanks for listening. <laughs> oh, it never gets old for me. Uh, so let's start with this. Uh, let's see, a couple weeks ago. Um, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers won the Super Bowl. If you remember, I said I might talk about bandwagon fans and, and stuff. I have this theory and this idea uh, that ties to these other theories and ideas. But uh, so we're actually going to do that. And this this actually this may this may need to be a two part series. So this we'll call bandwagon fans: the comfort of hell and the apocalypse, part one. And then uh, the next episode will be like an expansion upon that. So, uh, yeah, stay with me. Okay, so a couple of weeks ago, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers won the Super Bowl, the football champions of the world. They threw the most field goals and kicked the most home runs, and they walked away with a giant, shiny trophy. It's really exciting. Uh, now, if you are... Um, not into sports, it's okay because you still, even on a like a peripheral, have seen or heard. I'm guessing, and I, maybe because I'm in Florida and I'm close to Tampa Bay ish, a couple hours away, I see more of this. But um, you know, over the weeks leading up to the game and then after the game, during the game, uh, you're seeing on social media all the different posts of people. You're seeing the uh, the fans. Uh, there's a guy I know that is a big time Bucks fan, and he was showing um, his his excitement for the Bucks because he's been a fan for a really long time, and so he's posting pictures of like his old jerseys that he's had, which is cool. I think it's cool going back like the old school retro uh, uniforms. And then you see people, uh, you see the haters, the people that hate Tom Brady posting about they're just tired of seeing Tom Brady and giving him another chance to win and how the NFL is on his side. and all. So there's all this like, there's all this tension surrounding the game and Tom Brady and who's going to win the Super Bowl and give Patrick Mahomes a chance, you know, let the new guy have a chance, forget the old guy, he's had his day. And I'm like... I'm pulling for Tom Brady, if I'm honest. Don't hate me. I'm pulling for Tom Brady. He's 43 years old. He, this is like his 10th Super Bowl appearance. This is, he's going on like, he, he won his seventh Super Bowl ring. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. So I pull for him because even though he's not the underdog, he's kind of the underdog. Right, he's one of the greatest players of all time. You've got all these people that just loathe him. Uh, I'm pulling for him because I'm like, if that guy can 
can do this again despite being like <laughs> hated by so many people you know like good for that dude good for you tom anyways so what i've noticed is after they won the game is that there was a a, a, a few people you know this kind of typically happens and the bucks are just the most recent example so that's why we're using it but you end up uh when you take a team like tampa bay and then they win the super bowl they end up getting a lot more fans, right? They sell a lot more jerseys. The Tom Brady jersey is going to sell like hotcakes for the Tampa Bay Bucks. Um, they're going to sell more hats, more stickers, more whatevers, and they're going to make a lot of money off of it. But at the same time, well, you have a bunch of people, you know, they call this the bandwagon fan, somebody who's just getting on board for that moment, for that thing, because the team is doing well. It's like the, um, it's like uh, when, when I was growing up, like the Bulls. I was a huge Bull fan because of Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and the whole team, Horace Grant, all those guys. But also, guess what? They were like winning a lot. And so it was easy to be a fan of the Bulls because they were winning and everybody likes a winner. So I myself was a bandwagon fan. You see this all throughout sports. You see this through, through uh, I don't know, uh, anything really that once somebody gains a particular amount of success, then a lot more people want to be on their side and support their team. You get it? Yes, absolutely. But I also know that for the true fans, right, there is this uh, disc distaste this uh animosity maybe this like deep sense of dislike for bandwagon fans uh if you remember a while ago and i don't think i've talked about this but um was it several years ago when the cubs started doing well and i don't even know what happened but i know all of a sudden there was a bunch of new cubs fans because after so many years of of uh being terrible they actually did well so people were buying cubs hats and all kinds of wonderful stuff um, but the people who are like the longtime fans, the people who suffered with the Cubs for many years, the people who suffered with the Tampa Bay Bucks for many years, the people, uh, my, my, fa my extended family, my in-laws are hardcore dolphin fans and they are uh ride or die type people. You know what I'm saying? And so not that the Dolphins have done well, <laughs> I hear about it. I could, I don't even watch Dolphins football, but I could tell you an awful lot about the Dolphins football team because of my extended family, who I love, by the way. In case you're listening, I love you guys. You're awesome. Thank you for letting me and your family. Wink, nudge, thanks. Anyways, um, so bandwagon fans, uh, the, the people who have been around with the team like for many years when they've never done good never done good uh when they haven't done well they uh they seem to get a bit chafed when their team does good and then all the people who weren't there through the difficult times jump on the bandwagon of their team which i think is really really interesting okay uh like for example i saw a post after the super bowl um it was from a bucks fan and it was like a picture of Tom Brady throwing the football in the Bucks uniform. And it said, uh, it said, you know, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And then underneath it, it said, if you're, if you're, uh, if you weren't, if you weren't with us when we were seven and nine, uh, seven wins and nine losses, like being under, under average, <laughs> uh, then don't be with us now. Do you see? Like that's a, that's a big, you're drawing a line in the sand. 
So you've been with this team for a long time and you've, you know, you've experienced the hardship of defeat, the pain of all the losses, the frustration of never making it further into the playoffs, whatever. And so now your team wins. And now you're saying, hey, if you weren't there during the difficult, hard times, then don't get on the bandwagon now. (laughs) What to me, the thing that is hysterical to me about this is that don't we always want other people to like our team, right? You root for your team and you like, you wear the hat, you wear the shirt. And this is beyond the bucks. Obviously this is everything you wear the the hat, you wear the shirt because you support this team and you want other people to like your team as well. And then when you come up against somebody who doesn't like your team or roots for another team, you give them a hard time. Like, oh no, that team sucks. They're terrible. Why would you ever like them? You need to, you know, the the Bucks are the real deal. The Cubs are, the Browns are the real deal. Whoever. Um, you want people, uh, you're rooting for your team and you want people to be for your team because you have this belief that your team is the best, even when your team is clearly not the best. And then... The, the irony to me is that when the team does well and then when the people that were against you are now for you, there's this like wall, this animosity, this barrier towards the people who are now on your side, which is the thing that you wanted from the very beginning. <laughs> but now you don't want them to be on your side. Right? Do you see the irony in the whole thing? You cheer for this team. Be like, I want this team to, you should like my team. My team is the best, even when they're not. Well, now my team is the best. Okay, fine. I like your team. No, you can't like my team. You weren't here through the hard times. (laughs) I just take, oh, it just makes me laugh to myself. Like, this, it's this really kind of like, um, I've also noticed it's like this really, it's like a primitive, tribal warfare mindset, right? We have our tribe. This is the tribe of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This is the tribe of the Kansas City Chiefs. And we believe that our tribe is the best. And we go to war to prove that our tribe is the best. Um, and it, it becomes this very like, uh, if, if you're into, I think I mentioned this recently, if you're into or, or are familiar with the, the spiral dynamic stuff, it's this very like, uh, it's a very beige, like early stage human development sort of mentality when you get into like tribal warfare. Of course, we do this with church as well. You know, like our church is the best. This is why I go to your church, my church, your church sucks. You should try out my church, right? Um, and then when the church, when people actually start trying out your church and the church gets too big, what do people do? Oh, it's just too big. I don't feel like I know anybody. I need to go somewhere else where I can be known. <laughs> it's like we have this... Um, adversity not is adversity the right word i don't know uh we have this um we're opposed to people actually joining the thing that we're doing even though what we want more than anything is for people to acknowledge and validate the thing that we're doing and then when we do we're a bit bothered by it yeah so now the bandwagon that's my bandwagon um theory that we all want people to be for our team until the team does well. And then when people actually accept us and validate our feelings about our team, we actually put up some barriers or walls and don't want them to be a part of our team. (laughs) So the bandwagon fans, now 
when it comes to the Bible and faith and spirituality and church and all these things in the realm of religion and faith or whatever, um, there's this idea that uh, there's this idea of uh, I mean I, I don't know if you call it an idea. There's this picture of hell. <laughs> let's talk. Let's talk about hell. Um, hell in the Bible, and and this will have to be like part of the extended conversation next week. When you talk about um, this idea of hell in the Bible, right? The, there's this kind of there's this kind of mentality in the church and Christian thinking and has been a part of thinking for, for a long time that when it comes to the Bible, uh, the story of the Bible is really, uh, choose Christ, choose God, or suffer the consequences of not choosing Christ and God and burning in hell for all eternity, which, uh, raises a whole lot of interesting, uh, issues and questions and stuff. For example, when it comes to the picture of hell that most Christians have, um, that picture isn't really what's found in the Bible. <laughs> even even the word hell in the Bible isn't it, hell is a word that we've used to translate other words. And in fact, what you see uh, is that there there are four different words that get translated as hell in the Bible. So there's this word sheol, um, which is used to describe the grave or the abode of the dead. This is like where everybody goes. Uh, this comes from like this Assyrian Babylonian mythology that when the body dies, you know, the body goes into this, into the grave, into the earth, uh, into the abode of the dead. There's the word Hades, which is, is Greek. Uh, this is the equivalent of, of the word for Sheol, but in, in the Greek, uh, this comes out of the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. Um, but it also has its roots, roots in Greek mythology. Um, it's, it's a reference to like a general place of the dead or the underworld, right? You go to Hades, uh, a lot of the Greek mythology, those stories, you, you have to, um, and I'm not super into my Greek mythology, but, uh, I, I remember pictures like you have to cross the river, go into Hades and cross the river Styx and, you know, all that stuff. Um, you have the word Tartarus, which is also a Greek word. This also comes from Greek mythology. This refers to the prison of the Titans. This is actually only used once in the New Testament, Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 4, uh, as a place of punishment and prison for fallen angels. And then the fourth word for hell is uh, is the Greek word uh, Gehenna, which is the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, this is and there's all kinds of really interesting stuff about this located outside of Jerusalem uh, in the Old Testament. This is where the the Israelites actually offered child sacrifices to Melech, which was prohibited by by the law, prohibited by God, and then became a location synonymous with judgment. Um, and and really, it 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 doesn't. It has very little, if anything, to do with the afterlife. So when Jesus in in the Gospels is referencing hell, it's almost like uh, it's almost exclusively the word word Gehenna, right? It's the Valley of Hinnom, um, and this points back to these warnings and issues with the people of Israel talking about the coming destruction of Israel. This idea of judgment. Um, and the idea is that Jesus was borrowing this language, this prophetic language, as a foretelling of the events in uh, AD 70 when Jerusalem, when the when the temple was destroyed, rather than this like um, afterlife type of experience. So uh, this word Gehenna, 
is is a physical place, a physical thing on Earth now. Like you can you can find the Valley of Hinnom, the Valley the Gehenna now. So the Valley of Gehenna is a place where there were child sacrifices. It later became like um, the dump. It became the trash place. It came, became the sewage place for uh, for the city. And so when it talks about the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, or um, there's a reference uh, somewhere to the worms that, that will never die, like because they keep feasting on the flesh or whatever. Yeah, this is all describing like how things actually were at the time. Okay, now I could keep going into this stuff. Uh, it's not really what I want to get into fully today. Um, but I just want you to know that this idea that this picture of hell that, that we've been handed, you know, the, the devil with the pointy pitchfork and the ears and the, the horns and the like tormenting people for all eternity. Like that's not really the picture that is given to us in the Bible. Uh, that's not really how Jesus uses it. That's not how um, most of this, if you actually do some deep study on the language and the uses and the different forms of the words that we have translated into hell, that's not really um, the picture that we see. Now, I have a lot of other thoughts about that, but for now, <laughs> let's just go with that. Okay, so there's this concept and idea of hell that's found within the Bible, um, and it really isn't, in, at least in my opinion, and you can disagree, that's okay, it really isn't the picture that most churches and Christians have. Most of most of the modern concepts of of hell and this eternal damnation come from like uh, the the Dante stuff, the the seven layers, the seven rings of hell, right? Um, and what you see in the scriptures is that that's just not that's not really the picture that's portrayed. Now, here's the thing: if our current picture of hell isn't what the Bible really is talking about when it talks about Gehenna, right? It doesn't, again, doesn't use the word hell. That's just the word that we've translated all four of these other words into. Uh, and it doesn't paint the picture of hell that we are typically handed. Then why is it that so many people are adamant about maintaining the concept and the idea of hell? Why is it that I have, uh, I've had many people that have, <laughs> Uh, had issues with the things that I say or have left the church because I don't preach enough about hellfire and damnation. Why? Like, and here's the thing. If there's, if there's multiple views on this, and if there's multiple, if, especially if you like get into the deep study of it, if there's multiple ways to think about this, um, why is it that I would choose the version of hell that actually uh, that actually makes God to be a bit of a monster. Why would I choose a picture of hell that is opposed to the character and nature of God that I believe in that is love? Why would I choose the version of hell that keeps more and more people out rather than rethinking or diving into like the actual concepts of hell that we find in the Bible that is a lot less about keeping people out and a lot more about helping people find their way. Well, here's what I think. <laughs> uh, I think it actually comes from this idea of we take comfort in the idea of hell. And I think 
the the concept of hell gives us it's almost like a um it's like a like my son uh he's four or just turned five did he just turn five yeah something like that um he and and even my daughter when she was younger and maybe your kids um they would go to bed with like a like a blanket. They were blanket kids. Maybe your kid has a stuffed animal or something, or maybe your kid sucks their thumb, something like that. Our kids had like a night night blanket, and so he would really struggle to sleep without his night night. And so for him, that night night blanket was this sense of comfort that allowed him to have a sense of peace, so that he could in fact uh, go to sleep at night. I think our concepts of hell have become our night night blankets. That, that for many people, the idea of hell, although uh, the traditional view of hell may be a bit scary, and although many, many churches and preachers use this, uh, what I believe, false idea of hell to scare people into accepting Jesus or into becoming a Christian or a Christ follower, which, by the way, I think is absolutely insane and uh, kind of undermines what the gospel is, Um the concept of hell has become this night-night blanket that we take comfort in because what it does for us is it allows us to have a sense of peace that I have made the right decision, I am in the right, the people that are in the wrong will suffer the consequences and the punishment of not making the decision that I have made, right? It's this, it's a way to validate the self and the beliefs in what I think will happen in the afterlife. It's a way to validate how I view the scriptures. And so hell then becomes this night-night blanket for me because I know that I will be saved and the people who are bad people who do wrong, who are evil, will be punished and they will be punished forever. So there's this sense of comfort in knowing that I am saved and those who do not accept my way, which is the right way, will then be punished, which then becomes kind of a bit of a bandwagon, bandwagon theology to some degree, doesn't it? Because here's the thing, if the goal of, like, uh, of what most churches seem to preach, and if the goal of Christianity is to go into all the world and make disciples, you know, this whole thing, teach them the truth, make disciples of all nations, then my job is to get as many people on board as I possibly can. I need, to, I need to rally the troops. I need to bring people to Jesus. I need to baptize people in the name of God. I need to write all this stuff. Um, the goal is to make the team as big as possible, to get as many people on your side and rooting for your side as possible. But what it seems like is that when uh, it actually comes down to it is that we actually don't want those people on our side. Right. It's I mean, maybe in, in theory. Oh, like I've had I, uh, I've had several. <laughs> I, you know, you just hear this stuff all the time. We need to we want to win a thousand souls to Christ before you know, we want to turn this city over to God. We want all of the greater Orlando area to become Christians and to save the souls of the thousands and thousands, thousands of people. OK, but also like you're the first ones to cut people out. And also, you're the first people to cast judgment. And also, you're the first ones to like have an issue with somebody who is different. So, we have this idea that we really want people to be on our side, but I'm not sure that we really want people to be on our side. And then, if somebody who is different 
comes to the church or comes to want to know and believe in Christ or wants to accept Christ, then we're very skeptical of why are they actually doing it, right? So it, it comes back to this idea of the bandwagon. The same way that we get upset about people um, who haven't put in the time when it comes to supporting the team, I think it's the same way many Christians treat new believers or new Christians, right? Well, I've or, or at church, well, I've been here the longest. Well, I, you haven't been here through the difficult times. Or I've been a Christian since I was 13, and I've been fighting the good fight ever since. So I'm not sure if I really want these new people coming in and taking over. So that takes us back to this idea of the comfort of hell, where we're much more okay with this idea because we maintain this bandwagon theology that we're willing and able to uh, have some sort of peace of mind that those who do not choose our team are the ones who will be punished for it, even though we say we want them on our team, but we really don't. We take comfort in this idea that whatever happens to them isn't on us, and they will in fact be punished for their actions and their decisions. Oh, that's really interesting, isn't it? <laughs> I think, does that make sense? Because to me, it all kind of works together. Now, keep in mind, I was told in middle school that I shouldn't take a career in public speaking because I don't talk good. <laughs> now, okay, so here's, here's the next part of this, which I think we'll carry into next week. So... The way we think about uh, football and sports and teams and the way that people get upset about bandwagon fans, I think is the same way that people in the church often feel about Christians who show up who haven't put in the time or people who want to give their Christ their life to Christ but haven't put in the time and haven't gone through the hard work of becoming like us and they haven't suffered the persecution. Oh, get over yourself. What persecution anyways? Oh, you had somebody say they didn't like you or they didn't want to be friends with you because of what you believe? Have you seen like actual persecution of the rest of the world? Get over yourself. Have you seen persecution in the first century? Get over yourself. Um, so a couple weeks ago, we were doing this series, and, and this is what I'll expand upon next week. We were doing this series called The Gospel According to John. And by John, of course, we mean Johnny Cash. And so the very last uh, sermon in the series was uh, we were going through different different songs over his career, which of course he had an absolute ton of songs. I'm talking like it was something like over 1500 songs, 90 something albums, just an insane amount of work. And we did like a six week series. So you're a bit limited to say the least. So the very last one we did uh, was about one of the very last songs that Johnny recorded, Johnny Cash recorded, which was The Man Comes Around. The Man Comes Around for Johnny was, um, it was like one of his like, he wanted that to be part of his legacy. If you're not familiar with the song, uh, it's it's very much this like Judgment Day type of song. When the, uh, there's a man going around taking names, he decides who to free and who to blame. Um, and and it, it's uh, he he quotes a lot of scripture. He references a lot of scripture. Um, and and so what we talked about was this idea of we we, we studied the Book of Revelation again. I'll get in uh, heavier into this next week, but in the Book of Revelation. Uh, which people like really make a mess of, <laughs> like really, really make a mess of. But to me, it was such a good message. I wanted to be able, if you, if you heard it, then wonderful. You know where this is going. But if you haven't, to me, this was 
uh, a message worth kind of redoing and retelling uh, through the format of podcasts because it's so incredible. So um, the book of Revelation, right? Uh, the revelation comes from uh, the, the Greek word apocalypse, which is where we get the word apocalypse, which apocalypse, by the way, in the Greek doesn't mean judgment day. It doesn't mean like um, the end of the world, all of that craziness that people often attribute to it. The word apocalypse means to reveal or to make known. And so if you look uh, over the over the book of Revelation, you know, and, and I get, again, I get that there's about a billion uh, opinions and ideas about the book of Revelation and, uh, you know, this concept or the idea of the rapture, which isn't a word that's even in the scripture and actually is uh, coming from a, a different section uh, talking about, I, I think, goes back to this idea of um, when the Son of, of God, when Jesus comes again, like people will be taken up to meet him in the air. And so there's this idea of the rapture. But actually, that that doesn't even <laughs> have anything to do with it. It was actually a picture of how kings used to um, how kings used to be greeted by their kingdoms. Like when they went out to battle, they went out to war, or when they when they left the kingdom and then came back, the people of the village would go out to greet the king and welcome him back to his kingdom. And so this picture of like Christ descending and us going up into the air is more of a picture of us welcoming Christ back to the earth where everything is going to be happening, the restored, the renewed earth. That's a whole different topic. Um, so people have, have all these different ideas and perceptions about this stuff or the idea about the thousand year reign, when it's going to happen, at what point it's going to happen in this apocalypse and all this stuff. And like, honestly, like for me, I... It's a bit, it's all a bit drab. Uh, it's a bit dull and people spend a lot of time. Right? There's like kind of two different camps. I think there's the people who just go, uh, it's a bit scary. I don't know what to do with it. I'm not going to mess with it. And then there's the other camp of people on the other side of the spectrum that are like hyper into it and want to dissect everything. Uh, in fact, I heard a, I heard about a guy, I know a guy recently who was telling me he was going to a Bible study. And the whole Bible study was with these like businessmen from around town and they were doing a study on the book of Revelation, but they were doing it as if the book of Revelation was literal. And so they were trying to extrapolate biblical principles from a literal reading of the book of Revelation, which is one of the craziest ideas I've ever heard because the book of Revelation isn't literal. It's, it's, it's what's known as apocalyptical. It's, it's, it's an apocalyptic style of writing in which they take uh, dreams and visions and mix it with uh, reality and fantasy in order to convey a message that's underneath the surface level message, right? So to take something that's not intended to be literal and to try to apply it to a literal face value sort of meaning or application seems a bit, it seems a bit ridiculous. So anyways... <laughs> I'll get into more of that too. Uh, but what you see in the book of Revelation, this apocalyptic book, not literal book, um, is that one of the main apocalypse, the thing that's revealed, the thing that's made known, the thing that was hidden that is now made seen, happens in chapters four and five. And I'll, again, I'll break this down next week a bit more. But there's this open, uh, in, in four and five, what you see is. Uh, the heavens are all centered around the glory of God. You've got the creatures and the 24 elders, and they're singing praises to the throne, to the one who sits on the throne. Uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Beautiful picture about the holiness of God in the heavens. 
But then what you see later in that chapter is that there's a new song that's being sung, and it has to do with the lamb who was slain. It has to do with Christ who was given his life, right? Uh, and and the, sh- the song of the heaven shifts from holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty to worthy is the lamb who has been slain. And then what you see in that passage, let me pull it up here just so I can make sure I get it right. Um, what you see in that passage, uh, they sang a new song, uh, and it says, uh, you are worthy to take the scroll and open it sealed because you were slain. With your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests. This this is uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse like 9. Uh, per, uh, every tribe and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Okay, so without ruining next week, what you see is the lamb who is slain is being credited with redeeming persons from every tribe, language, tongue, nation, and people. So the lamb who is slain has redeemed like everything. It's covering all the bases, right? It's covering all the bases. And even what you see is the song extends into the heavens and it's all creation, which we'll get into, which is really cool. But, but my point is this. With the idea of the bandwagon fans and the comfort of hell and this apocalypse, okay? The apocalypse is this big revelation, this big reveal. The thing that is hidden is now made seen is that the the lamb has redeemed like everything. The lamb has brought redemption to all, to not only to all people, but to all creation, right? Um, this is like the ultimate... Uh, this is Tom Brady winning the Super Bowl. So Tom Brady wins the Super Bowl with the Buccaneers, and then you have all these new fans. And then the people who have been around a while are a bit upset about this because you weren't here through the bad times and through the tough times. What you have in the Revelation is the winning of the Super Bowl, and then everyone is allowed to come and support the team. Everyone is allowed to be a fan. Everyone is now a part of supporting the thing that has happened, right? Which is why I think the people who have been longtime Christians uh, get have the potential or prefer to prefer to promote this concept and this idea of hell that those who have not been on the team, you haven't been here, you haven't supported, you haven't been through the tough times, therefore you don't deserve to be a part of this. That's why we maintain the image of hell that people have maintained and that's why we take comfort in this idea of hell because it speaks to the same idea of the bandwagon theology in which no we were here first we've been here all along and now we are the ones that should reap the the rewards at the end of the whole thing we are the ones that get to come alongside Tom Brady and support the team because we have been here. We should have some sort of credit for the work that he has done because we have been here all along, right? So this is what you see happening in the book of Revelation. The Lamb who was slain has now redeemed all things. All things are welcome. Everybody is now welcome. Everyone is now invited. Everything has now been redeemed. And so it's <laughs> the reason we maintain the traditional views of hell is because we're not sure if we want everyone to be a part of the thing that we were first a part of. <laughs> does that make sense? I I think it does. I think this is why so the um there seems to be this underlying uh exclusivity 
to the kingdom of God, that yes, Christians promote this idea of wanting to talk about inviting, uh, we need to make disciples of all nations and we need to go out and save the souls of the world, but yet um, we're not really sure that we want everyone to be a part of it. We don't want people to actually get on the bandwagon because we don't like the bandwagons. If you weren't with us when we were seven and nine, then don't be with us now. Do you see? And so then this perpetuates the idea in our minds of uh, the need for something like hell, because you weren't with us when we were seven and nine, so you don't deserve to be with us now. But the revelation is, the apocalypse is, yeah, but the lamb who is slain has redeemed all things. Oh, oh, man, do you see that? I mean, hopefully that's making sense. In my brain it works, but also I'm a bit messed up. <laughs> oh, man, what a really serious conversation for Monday morning. Hey, how's your drive to work <laughs> when you get to work today? Hey, what have you been up to? How's your weekend? Oh, it's good. I just listened to a podcast about hell. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's good stuff. Anyways, I th let's call that part one. Bandwagon fans, the comfort of hell, and the apocalypse. And so what I want to do next week, uh, next Monday or whenever this comes out, is I want to talk about, I want to expand upon that bit in Revelation, the apocalypse, and show you how important and incredible this new song is and how it just expands and moves into all things and how maybe that should open us up to actually uh, being on the bandwagon of bandwagon fans. <laughs> oh man all right my friends i hope that that was interesting and insightful and hope it gave you something to think about hopefully um this will give you open your hearts and your minds to something new or maybe it will confirm something you've been working through or wrestling through or maybe it sparks a bit more curiosity to do some study on your own i hope that's that's okay too do that yeah study this stuff there's all kinds of really interesting stuff out there even even if you just take the idea of hell and wrestle through that a little bit um that hell was this physical place um that he, that jesus could point to and say you know when when you don't live according to the ways that I'm instructing, you're actually like creating the mess that will be in front of you. Like maybe the idea of hell, maybe the scary part about hell is that hell is something that we can live in now rather than something that will be some sort of eternal punishment for later, right? And if you look at, if you look at people's lives, um, and maybe you've been through some stuff or maybe you're experiencing some stuff right now. If you've ever been through like a really nasty divorce, if you've ever gone through something that involves um, the uh, like the custody of children and you see how people can um, treat each other, that's like a living hell. If you've seen any of like the uh, the amount of displacement worldwide with refugees and people being taken or forced from their lands because of poverty or war or whatever, that's like a living hell. If you look at the year 2020, that's a living hell. <laughs> like if you don't believe in, in the reality of hell currently after you're like 2020, I don't think you're ever going to get there. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. Oh, bandwagon fans, the comfort of hell and the apocalypse. There's so much more. 
I can't wait to talk about this next week and the redemption of all things. It's going to be awesome. Hope that you'll make plans to follow along and share it with your friends. Oh, by the way, hey, tell all your friends about this, would you? Because I've been seeing an awful lot about what uh, kind of the traditional, typical American church is up to. And I'm not sure that it's very good. I'm not saying we have it all figured out, but there's just so much garbage and misuse and mistreatment of the Bible that I think is like really, really damaging and hurtful to the teachings of Jesus. And I think so many people have bought into this false idea of Christianity that we have made into the standard of Christianity that I think is actually really, really bad for like us as individuals, for the nation, for like who Jesus is and what he was doing. So uh, maybe, maybe share this with your friends and maybe uh, we can help people along the way, maybe gain some new wisdom and some new insight. Maybe we can help them to see the emu, the giant six foot prehistoric bird that's been in the front yard the whole time. All right. Anyways, that's it for now, my friends. This has been the Sneaky Emu episode number 25. <sighs> I'm sending you all the love and peace in your general direction. May the odds be ever in your favor. May the force be with you. And may God be ever on your side. Talk to you later. Bye. We're here to unlearn. Teachings of the church and states.